From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Today on The Surgery Set, we welcome Dr. Andrew Wright. He did his residency here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, graduated in 2005, and moved to UW, the University of Washington, or the other UW as we call it, uh, where he was actually one of my attendings when I was a resident. He has become a real leader in surgical education and surgical simulation, as well as a real leader in using social media to teach about surgery. And he's also clinically become a world expert in hernia repairs, and particularly complex hernia repairs. And we're going to hear from him today about a particularly complex and interesting hernia that he recently repaired at the zoo. Thank you so much for agreeing to take the time to tell us a little bit about this crazy operation that you did. But maybe before we get into that, just can you tell us a little bit about your connection to, to Madison and, uh, and what you're doing now? I'm in Seattle now, but I trained in Madison. So I was a surgery resident uh, and I did uh, two years of research in the lab with Dave Mavi when he was in, in Madison. Uh, so I finished in 2005 and then found my way out to, to the West Coast. Um, but still have a lot of fond memories of Madison. And, and I tell a lot of my med students that they should be applying out to the surgery program there because I think it's still one of the, the top in the country. Well, I remember meeting you as a resident out there where I started in 2005 too. And, and when Madison came up as a job, I remember thinking to myself, oh, yeah, Andy Wright always used to say, like, Madison is a great place to be. Yeah, absolutely. It's, plus, it's a good town. A yeah. A little colder in the winter than Seattle, but that's okay. We don't get the rain. That's right. I, I think about that in February. And you're, you've been incredibly active in the, in the social media sphere around surgery and, and specifically around hernias, which is how I've sort of kept in touch with you from afar, is, is seeing your work on, on Facebook around hernia repair. Yeah, so there are a couple of uh, closed Facebook groups for surgeons. Um, the one you're talking about on hernia, uh, I also run one for foregut surgery. So these have, you know, anywhere from a few hundred to a few thousand surgeons that get together and discuss interesting cases or ask questions. Uh, it's been one of the more valuable things that I've seen for professional development and even improving patient care. You know, a Facebook post or a Twitter post gets way more interest in people talking than uh, any one of my scientific articles, which I think a lot of times get published and nobody ever looks at them or reads them. I'm a member of the hernia group, um, and it is just incredible. I mean, someone will post a complex case or a question or a picture and ask for recommendations, and it's like, instantaneous that there are dozens of people from all over the world weighing in on it. Yeah, and I think it's been a great opportunity. I've certainly learned a lot. And also to take some things with a grain of salt as well. So you sort of have to look at who's posting. And um, there are a lot of opinions out there. So you have to be able to judge, just like anything on the internet, you have to sort of judge what the source is. Right. And, and if nothing else, it's an amazing display of just how varied practice continues to be. Yeah, my, my other piece of my job besides the clinical piece, I work in our uh, simulation lab and do a lot of work on surgical education. One of the things that's always remarkable is the amount of diversity in how we approach patients and how we do operations that wouldn't be tolerated in other you know, high reliable reliability organizations. You, know, you look at whether it's aviation or nuclear power or anything else, they, they don't tolerate a lot of deviation, whereas 
we seem to have a lot of you know, surgeon to surgeon, institution to institution variability. That's a nice entree into probably the single greatest variance in practice that I've uh, I've seen uh, lately from a surgeon, which is you operated on a different species. That's correct. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Start from the beginning. It's it's an incredible story. Sure. So. Um... I was hanging out at home one night and I got a text message from a friend of mine. They were looking for a hernia expert at the Woodland Park Zoo, which is our zoo here in Seattle. Uh, One of their gorillas had um, stopped eating and was picking in his abdomen and they thought maybe it was a hernia and asked if I could come take a look. So I said, sure. And, you know, like most hernias, I figured not an emergency. Most of the time people with a hernia, you know, it's relatively asymptomatic. might bother him a little bit. So we had arranged, this was I think a Thursday, we arranged for me to come in on Saturday morning to examine the gorilla, um, which is actually a major undertaking because to examine the gorilla, you actually have to anesthetize it, sedate it. Yeah. Um, so they had lined up in one day in order to sedate the, the gorilla. They were planning a dental exam. They were planning me to come check it for a hernia. Um, my friend, who's actually the, an ENT surgeon, was going to examine this uh, animal sinuses. It was like this whole array of uh, medical care while, while they had the opportunity with the gorilla sedated. So I walked into the, um, the gorilla enclosure, and, and first of all, the backstage is really fascinating. If you ever have a chance to do a backstage tour at the zoo, it's, it's really kind of cool. But we went backstage in the gorilla enclosure, and the veterinarian sedated the animal, and I walked in. and. Uh, the first thing that hits you walking in is really the smell. Yeah, uh, it's just a primal funk in the in the gorilla enclosure. Because you know when you see when you're on the other side of the glass, you don't you don't get that sense. It's sure. Sort of that, even though you're there and you might be separated by an inch or two of glass, it's still at a remove. It's a completely different story when you're actually walking around the, the enclosure. Um, but within really just. It, almost instantaneously when I looked at this gorilla, I knew that it needed emergent surgery. When I got some more of the backstory, it turns out that he had had, um, over the course of two or three days, increasingly been sort of picking at his abdomen and had actually not eaten in about two days, hmm. uh, day and a half, two days. And so uh, when I looked at him, even through the fur, you could see that the, there was this really tense hernia and the skin overlying it was necrotic. I have some pictures I'll share with you and you can post on the website. Um, but really instantly you could see that it, it needed to be uh, taken care of immediately. And this is an umbilical hernia? Like they have an umbilicus umbilical. just yeah. like us, Primary right? Primary umbilical hernia. Yeah. Huh. Uh, so this is, a, an, uh, by the way, a, a alpha male silverback gorilla, about 450 pounds and about five feet tall. Wow. And uh, although I certainly operated on 450 pounds, on people, you know, you, I know you're a pediatric surgeon. You probably don't see that very. That's very like often that weighs more than my entire service. Yeah, that's right. But as a hernia surgeon, you know, I'll see uh, obese folks. But but this is 450 pounds, basically of pure muscle. I mean, wow. This, this can lift a car if it wants. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just a primary umbilical hernia. But it had um, incarcerated and had started getting necrotic. Now, fortunately, he wasn't sick in terms of you know his vitals were stable. He wasn't septic didn't show any signs of bowel compromise other than being really uncomfortable. Yeah. And and when we actually ended up doing the operation, it, it turned out there was no bowel involved. He had essentially incarcerated his omentum uh, into the hernia and then the omentum infarcted. And then the overlying skin got so tense that it started to get necrotic. 
Wow. Or so, very fortunately, the bowel is all good. At this point, you're in the enclosure. Mm-hmm. Then you have to transport him to an operating room and get all that set up, or? Yeah, so the gorilla was sedated, but not intubated. So they mm. had basically darted him, um, and he was snoozing. But we loaded him up into a converted ambulance. It's a real human ambulance that they converted to for use at the zoo and took him um, to the animal hospital there in the zoo. And they have a full animal hospital with an operating room there. Hmm. You know, I've had a lot of questions. Why didn't the vets just take care of this? And, and the, the vets are fantastic people. They're responsible for caring for anything from, you know, a chickadee or a little bird to this gorilla. Uh, they're experts in what they do, but they're not experts in, in really large animal surgery and certainly not in hernia because most animals, either they don't get a hernia or if they have a hernia, it doesn't get fixed. So that's that's why they called us in. Yeah. But yeah, they had a fully equipped operating room. Um, and once they got into the operating room, we got the gorilla intubated, uh, the single largest endotracheal tube I've ever seen. And, and I, uh, the photos that I'll send you... Uh, and just these giant fangs and this huge endotracheal tube. It's, Garden it's hose awesome. type thing, yeah. Exactly. So the OR had, you know, lights and sterile gowns and gloves and equipment. Um, what we didn't have was any specific supplies for either GI surgery or hernia surgery. So um, I called in a few favors and called the rep from Cook who provided some, some biologic mesh in, in the event that we would need it. Uh, we had some staplers, surgical staplers available in case we needed to do a bowel resection. My partner, uh, Rob Yates, who's another surgeon in the hernia center here in, at the University of Washington, came and assisted me. And actually, he rounded up the supplies while I was getting everything prepped at the zoo. And then we came in and we did the operation together. Wow. So that was that same day, just like later that day on Saturday. Yeah. It, we yeah. From when I saw the animal, um, it probably took another hour to get everything set up, but we made an incision within an hour, hour and a half. And, and I, I will say things aren't always efic- that efficient at our, my own hospital. It's so like it amazing crazy. turnover times. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then what do you find? How, I mean, how different is it from, from operating on a human or once the drapes are up, is it kind of the same? Once the drapes were up, it was really remarkably the same. I mean, we we actually grabbed a book of anatomy just to confirm, but the abdominal wall anatomy is certainly all the same. Um, The GI tract is pretty similar, but they have a much larger cecum Hmm. um, just because of their diet. But like I said, fortunately, the bowel wasn't actually involved. So we got in and we um, immediately on making our skin incision, we went around the necrotic skin and found basically a a pocket of about 40 or 50 cc's of, of pus and then wow. infarcted omentum. Uh, and then the fascial defect was pretty tight. So it was only about a four centimeter defect, but it was really tight around a wad of omentum that was, was quite demitous. Um, so we actually had to open the fascia a little bit more in order to release it. Uh, resected the omentum, explored the abdomen to make sure there was nothing else bad. Uh, and then we closed them. The fascia, fascial defect was small enough to close primarily, but um, given the fact that this animal, you can't really restrict its activity. Right, not gonna uh, wear a binder. Exactly, right. so we, um, we did use mesh, but because of the active infection, I didn't put in anything synthetic. So we used a piece of biologic uh, biodesign mesh. Talking to the company, that's the first time they've ever heard it used in, uh, in a primate other than human, a non-human primate. Yeah. Um, 
So we did an underlay with the, the biologic mesh and then closed the fascia primarily. Uh, we resected all the necrotic skin back to healthy tissue, but there was still enough. Uh, we mobilized some tissue flaps. We closed the skin most of the way. In a human, I probably actually would have left it open and packed it, but I, we didn't really, we you can't pack a gorilla. Yeah. The skin closure was interesting. The vets asked us to close the skin with uh, stainless steel wires which I thought was really wow. interesting, yeah. old school. Um, but the reason they, they like the stainless steel wires is you, you cut the ends of the wires off and it leaves little barbs. And they actually asked us to make them stick up a little bit um, so that to keep the gorilla from rubbing at the incision. So it was huh. like a little reminder not to touch the, the incision. Yeah. And then we left the inferior couple centimeters open and put a little Penrose drain in just so that any fluid might you know, help decompress over the next couple of days. Gorilla woke up and did great. Wounded end up opening up actually a little bit. Uh, they were unable to pack it, so they just sort of kept an eye on it. It eventually healed completely by secondary intention, just like you would expect in a human. The The remarkable thing is it's really a great example of, of enhanced recovery after surgery protocols, which is something we're working on in, in our institution. You know, multimodal analgesia, because you can't give them narcotics really post-op, so. We used liposomal bupivacaine, which is something we're using in humans now, this you know, long-acting local analgesic. Uh, he got some ketoprofen IV and some Tylenol IV and a little narcotics IV, but then, you know, tanked him up with some fluid. But once he wakes up, there, you can't leave an IV in the gorilla. So yeah. no IV fluids, diet ad lib. Basically, uh, they restricted his activity only by keeping the females and the juveniles out of his enclosure. They put him in his own enclosure so he couldn't interact with any gorillas. And then they also used some blankets for bedding. Normally, they like to use straw, but they were worried that he would actually pack straw or use the straw to poke into the wound. So they, they didn't <laughs> let him have any straw for a few weeks. And that's about it. So he recovered pretty fast. Wow. Did you do yeah. post-op visits? I did. I got to go feed him actually, which was a lot of fun. Oh, cool. We, uh, ate some yogurt out of a spoon. Um, you know, I was on uh, one side of the, the cage and he was in the inside. Cause, but uh, yeah, he was really happy. Uh, interestingly, he doesn't like the vet uh, very much because he associates the vet with getting darted. Mm -hmm. uh, but he never saw me when he was six because he was already sedated before I went into the enclosures. So yeah. He had no, uh, no association of me or my scent or anything. Interesting. Yeah, it sounds a lot like pediatrics in a way. Like the, the the kids will resent the residents for like waking them up in the morning and poking on their yeah. wounds. And by the time I come by, I'm like good cop, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy being the good cop. Yeah, fantastic. Is it going to change the way you practice with your adult patients now? You're a little less restrictive in your post-op management of hernias? Um, you know, to be frank, I, we were already pretty... Uh, unrestricted. I, I'm very liberal in letting patients get back to normal activity. And we've been working pretty heavily on, on enhanced recovery after surgery protocols and hernia. So we already are minimizing narcotics and fluids and all of that stuff. But uh, I do think it shows, you know, a lot of what our restrictions, our cycle, even our own restrictions when we're recovering from surgery are psychological. You feel like you shouldn't be up, you can't move because the gorilla, which is physiologically pretty much the same, if not bigger and, you know, more more pressure on the wound, you know, he's up and moving right away. Yeah, didn't know any better. Yeah, exactly. It is so instructive. I mean, I think 
we see that again with kids, you know, like they don't know that they're supposed they to be laid up after surgery. Supposed- so they, they get up and go move around. It's such an interesting example, too, of like surgery being a, a versatile profession in a way, right? It's, it's not what we know can be broadly applied and, and it lets us be good citizens, you know, to the community in the broadest possible sense. <laughs> yes, very broad. I, I will say that um, I, I had not anticipated being the gorilla surgeon, but now I, I did some research afterwards because I was really curious. I couldn't find any other examples of hernia repairs in gorillas, but there are some case reports of human surgeons getting involved. So there's a, actually a recent C-section that was done by a, a gynecologist hmm. on a gorilla. Uh, my friend Greg Davis, actually, he's the one that got me involved in all this in the first place as an ENT surgeon, did uh, endoscopic sinus surgery on the same gorilla. Oh, wow. Uh, turns out that the gorilla got a sinus abscess. VIP is the name of the gorilla. He's in, he's quite old for a gorilla. He's almost 40, mm. so, you know, on the geriatric side. In the wild, these animals don't live to that age. Um, so they're getting these diseases that they might not see or, get, or at least not get treated for. But, yeah. Uh, so, and then I think there was another gorilla um, that had, uh, in the same zoo, actually, in Woodland Park Zoo, that had a, uh, an orthopedic injury that they repaired. So, huh. you know, I think there's going to be more and more of this. Yeah. So, are, are you, you're on the list now for any future okay, hernia problems? Yeah. Are you writing it up? Is this, is this a case report? You know, we've talked about it. It's hard to know where to submit that to. So um, the vet was talking about writing it up for a veterinary journal, and I was thinking about writing something up for hernia. Yeah. Um, Who knows? We'll see. It's certainly a lot more interesting than the case report I published in hernia. Not, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, like it's it'd be tough to beat. And even from a from a human standpoint, like just a reminder that we're not that different. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, just to bring it back full circle, because he started by talking about the social media and the, and the Facebook groups. Yeah. Posting about this case in the International Hernia Collaborative and on Twitter, I mean, I got, you know, a couple hundred comments, discussion, you know, likes, whatever, on the Facebook group, and then again posting it on Twitter. That takes almost the place of the old-fashioned case report going to a journal. Um, right. The, yeah. the only advantage of posting it to a journal is I get to then cite it on PubMed and add it to my CV. But in terms of communicating to my peers, uh, it's actually easier and faster to do it through these new new platforms. I think how that those evolve, these social media platforms evolve as an educational tool is really something that's fascinating. My group uh, are, is actually doing some research on how surgeons and patients are using social media for education purposes, which is, I think, a new frontier. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's a great point, right? I, I do not pick up every issue of hernia that comes out, um, but I sure no, no do. I sure did hear. No offense to the editors of hernia. No, but I mean, it's just it's a it's it's sort of different, right? Like, I'm more likely to see a post by the journal Hernia on Facebook or on Twitter than I am to like read it in the journal. Um, yeah, just given the nature of, of the world and, and, and leveraging that and saying not that that's a, a one-off thing or just a, a, a byproduct of social media, but actually a potential use of social media for semi-formalized surgical education is, is I think, a wave of the future that's awesome. If I can make just one more comment, of which course. is just to tie things back to, to Wisconsin. My very first case as a surgery intern was with Munji Kalilu. 
uh, one of the transplant surgeons, and um, it was a hernia. And so I, my, as an intern, I got to do this hernia case uh, with Munji, and, and um, I still remember to this day, I was reflecting on this because I heard he was your grand round speaker. I'm actually talking to him, I think, uh, tomorrow morning for the podcast. Yeah. Oh, perfect. He, so he um, set up the retractors, and he said, I can make you look very, very good. And then he moved his fingers just a centimeter, and everything fell apart. You couldn't see anything. You couldn't mm. understand the anatomy. He said, or I can make you look very, very bad. <laughs> and that lesson in the importance of retraction and exposure has stuck with me from my very first case to, to the present day. So, so still using those lessons in hernia surgery now. That's fantastic. I will absolutely share that story with him because I think what a nice reminder, too, of the world is being a small, small place. And the, the lessons that we teach our interns on day one may affect what they do at a zoo 15 years later. <laughs> Exactly. Incredible. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk with us. We will have your Twitter handle and photos of the operation up on the website, which is surgery.wisc.edu backslash podcast for people to take a look at. I mean, having seen the pictures of some of them myself already, it's, uh, it's worth taking a look at. So. Oh, my pleasure. Good to talk to you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the surgery set or have suggestions on how we can make our program better, please provide us with your feedback. You can rate our podcast and leave your comments in iTunes, Podbean, or Stitcher. Or you can send us an email at podcast at surgery.wisc.edu. Next time on The Surgery Set, I'll be joined by famed UW-Madison transplant surgeon Dr. Munsi Kalayalu. Dr. Kalayalu's career spanned 50 years and two continents, taking him around the United States and Turkey to perform transplants. In 1983, he began working at UW-Madison, where he started our liver transplant program, a program that is still active and thriving, before returning to Turkey to do the same. He'll talk with us about his extensive career and his incredible journey in surgery. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Annie Erickson. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at J.E. Kohler, and the department is at Wisk Surgery. And if you happen to work at a hospital in Wisconsin, we encourage you to check out a new project from us here at UW-Madison, the Wisconsin Surgical Collaborative. Find out more at scwisconsin.org. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisk.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. <laughs>